Welcome to episode 203 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Neumeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our podcast topic this week, we're going to explore the ideas of storytelling and the algorithms behind it, its formulas, as creativity and artificial intelligence draw closer and closer uh, to human outputs, this is an interesting uh, question for us to explore. So what kicked off this, this uh, idea for our discussion this week was some research that came from the University of Vermont and the University of Adelaide, uh, in which they collected uh, the story arcs from various works of fiction that were archived on Project Gutenberg. So for folks unfamiliar with Project Gutenberg, it's an open source uh, repository of some of the great fiction works of the Western world. Uh, and these researchers uh, from the two universities took texts, uh, I think there were about 1,300 texts, and ran it through a series of analysis uh, and, and uh, sort of derived from these texts the emotional arcs uh, that make up stories uh, in Western literature. So as you might expect, there aren't um, a huge variety of story arcs. However, these can be combined and recombined into much more complex plots. So uh, while any particular piece of literature might have uh, you know, a couple of these building blocks, um, the, the core pieces are what this uh, algorithm was identifying. So uh, according uh, to this research, there are six main building blocks here, and um, uh, those are, uh, number one, as you know, many of us might be familiar with, is rags to riches. So we, uh, we, we, we are familiar uh, with these. Uh, Charles Dickens is a huge... Um, uh, has a, a huge body of work that uh, a lot of the stories are rags to riches stories. And, and of course, that maps well to the, uh, uh, you know, sort of the American dream, right? You rise up from nothing and you become uh, something very important. So rags to riches. Uh, and of course, the opposite of that is riches to rags. <laughs> That's where you start with a lot and you end up with, uh, with nothing, uh, which is somewhat less appealing, I would think. Uh, the third uh, plot type or emotional arc that they articulate is the, I, I like this one, man in a hole. Um, that reminds me of Alice in Chains for some reason. Um, now I'm dating myself with my Gen X uh, uh, mu music references, but man in a hole is where someone gets into a lot of trouble and then gets out of trouble again. Um, so I don't know if that would map exactly to um, I don't know, Dirk. I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can uh, about the uh, uh, the counterfeiter, the the fraudster. Um, Frank Abagnale. Yes, yes. Had a long time. <laughs> right. Yeah. That seems like a man in the hole uh, type of story. Uh, would it be man man out of the hole? Like yeah. rags to riches is a thing. You start here, you end there. Shouldn't it be you start in the hole and you get out? Yes. Yeah. So that's it's a fall and then a rise again. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of the core to, to that plot. And then the last three all have, um, uh, their plots, but they're all associated with, with a specific work. Um, Icarus, 
uh, you know, we all know the story of Icarus flying too close to the sun, Cinderella, uh, which has a, a rise, then a fall, then a rise again, and the Oedipus, uh, Oedipus sorry, um, which is a fall, then rise, then fall. Um, so, so those are the six core um, story arcs. And if you're looking at a, at a more complicated, longer work, like, say, some of the Harry Potter novels, those, those will have multiple components uh, sort of integrated together to, to get these, uh, um, you know, get these arcs uh, sort of placed together. Not, not just like Lego bricks, but you kind of get the idea. Um, so, so you can see, I mean, we've already started talking about uh, uh, how, how our culture, uh, you know, in the United States is reflected through some of these stories. Um, but now we've got artificial intelligence, which is, which is more or less boiling down these texts to their, to their, their essence. And uh, I think what's interesting about this is there have been attempts to then take these um, these pieces and then have the computer then reassemble those and create some uh, some new work out of it, right? So you've boiled down, uh, you've distilled the essence of, of these these plot arcs. You know now can the AI uh, sort of create from 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 the components that it's that it's derived in the first place. And from what I've seen, the resounding answer so far, at least, is is no, no, thank you. It is, it is AI is good at at finding the patterns, but not so good at at mimicking the uh, the outputs. So for, at least for the time being, human authors, um, you're you might you might be safe. Uh, so far. So let's just take that first part. Dirk, what was your reaction to this, this research? I, it, it feels, it, it, it feels a little bit new, but it's kind of something we already knew that there were these uh, core plots here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the article mentioned that Kurt Vonnegut was initially doing some of those sort of breakdowns of different, different story arcs, you know, decades ago. Um, the, the romance that we ascribe to humanity is largely just ignorance. And what I mean by that is um, things like writing a book, things like all the detail that we put into the description of a place or a character. Those are the result of thought processes that are at the basic level as stripped down and brute force as what AI can be programmed to do. So aside from the fact that it's a machine created by a person as opposed to a machine that's doing the work, I think it's something of a false premise that the, you know, the, the AI doing it, the machine doing it is something that, that, that's so, so different and foreign and um, lacks the humanity. I think it's, it's getting down to the essence of the humanity, the humanity without the, the ignorance layered on top of romanticizing things simply because we can't articulate the ways in which they actually happen. Um, you know, there was, and you mentioned, well, you know, writers, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm misquoting you now, but you know, you said, you know, well, writers maybe don't have much to worry about yet from, from AI. I read another article this weekend about a writing competition in Japan and for, for some number of years now, they've invited non-human writers to participate. And the implication from this article was this year was the first year 
that AI writers participated, and they're welcome to do so. Um, and there, it's done anonymously, by the way, so that the people who are judging don't know if someone's a human or not. And um, it was under 1% of the submissions. It was uh, uh, roughly 1,500 submissions and maybe 11 or 12 AI submissions to this contest. Um, but at least one, and maybe some of them, got into the later rounds of the contest. Now, um, none of them won the big prizes. Humans won the big prizes. But uh, the AIs were skillful enough to, to get through early rounds of a competition for the best writing in in Japan. So so yeah I I saw that um that article as well and I think the the um the AI I it's it, it was a recombinant uh competition so I don't think they actually the AI actually constructed sentences. I think it recombined sentences that were written by humans which nonetheless you have to i mean you have to start somewhere you have right? to start right it, it doesn't it doesn't negate the fact that it made it to another round i mean you could take any two sentences you know any bad editor can 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 mangle a piece so so it's probably better uh, a little bit more accurate to say that the ai edited or at least uh at least to that level of of composition which is impressive nonetheless um, I, you know, I, I do think, you know, you, you've, you've are, you know, articulated well, the sort of the, the, the point of, uh, having AI create from, from a rules-based, um, set, you know, cre create these, uh, pieces of fiction or, or what have you. I, I think there, there is, there is a part of, of human, um, input that, is not rules based that is fundamentally call it improvisational or chaotic or um does not does not necessarily uh uh follow a a nice formula totally um, don't agree make that case in a concrete way right give me a concrete example so so for instance the uh uh so so if if you're a fan of jazz which 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 i am um there, there are elements of of jazz which you can uh, sort of create the um, the the elements that that all players need to know to play together. So, so there are certain rules, right, that allow a jazz group to play, you know play together. It's not everybody improvising at the same time, usually. But then you have someone like Ornette Coleman who says, okay, what happens if you know, if I remove some of those rules uh, and just see what happens when everybody is improvising at the same time. Or you have somebody like um, Thelonious Monk who, uh, you know, is, is playing piano in such a way that uh, no, you know, trained pianist and, and very few untrained pianists would even think uh, to do because he's looking at the instrument from a completely... Um, uh, and I'm using naive here, but not in a negative way, you know, like a perspective where he's coming to the instrument without any of the the rule sets associated with, you know, uh, uh, the usual uh, when, when you're going to, to learn an instrument for the first time. So he's very much a self-trained person. So so I think there are when when we're talking about breaking down rules for machines to understand there, there's a human perspective that then uh, sort of uh, becomes something special, I think, when you approach 
um, that same problem set like a Thelonious Monk or Ornette Coleman, where the rule set is just sort of thrown out the window. Uh, and that's what I mean by that. Oh, John, that's so quaint. <laughs> let me let me let me brutally break it down into into how how a machine like process would would deal with that. So you have um, n songs out in the world within which there are y rules that are exhibited, and those songs can be broken down into constituent parts to illustrate the rules. Can be broken down into constituent parts to illustrate. What um, and I'm I'm not a musician, so I'm now going to use terms that undermine my ability to make my point. Um, but how this chord it goes well with that chord, or this set of things goes well with that set of things. Um, that's all the easy stuff and the expected stuff. What what the the sort of jazz geniuses you were talking about do is take the unexpected things and make them work. And the way that they do that is by having an understanding of which unexpected things would work in the context of something else. Now, they're not doing that out of alchemy or magic. They're doing that out of a, a, an understanding of the data, an understanding of all of these data sets, all of these combinatorials, all of these rules that they, they have internalized, and they're plucking bits um, without consciously thinking about it of things that do work. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing. It's all data and how it's being used and having a, a sense, you know, in, in sort of the touchy-feely human way of when and how and, and why it should be used. The only barrier to AI being able to do that is having enough data that is structured correctly, that is tagged correctly, for lack of a better word, um, that the AI then is sophisticated enough in its construction to be able to, to use. I, I, I don't have a sense of time horizons, but I think it's, you know, it's years or decades, not centuries before the best improvisational jazz music is being done by an AI. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, take that under advisement. I, I, don't, I don't agree just because I, you know, I'm sort of in the weeds here in terms of, uh, uh, you know, my my sort of being soaked in 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 this music i i think there you know a, is anything possible sure sure it's possible that that uh the ai could have some you know huge uh total total data set that that um makes it sort of apply uh, to become you know felonious monk or or whatever you know pick your your avant-garde jazz great but i think there is there is there is something special about what the the human being can do because there's also this so so who then i i, I guess i guess my follow-on question is if ai felonious monk is just you know jamming out thousands and thousands of jazz uh, pieces and most of them don't work. Like, where does that, where does that get vetted? I mean, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of like sort of judgment and being able to get this music to resonate with people as well. Like, do you see that just as, as another data crunching problem or is it like the AI has like is going to be able to sense, you know, the culture and the environment and the people who are listening to it and all that. And that's just a big, massive data problem. 
Yeah, I think it's a maturity model problem where in the early in early days, I mean, similar to you mentioned that the the, the book, you know, the, the writing competition was just combinatorials of sentences, just I'll put in, mm-hmm. in scare quotes. Um, you know, in the early days, it's, there's going to be a lot more bad than good. There's going to be a lot more that's not sophisticated or doesn't sound good or doesn't work out well. And there will be a lot of content generated, um, you know, high noise, very little signal. But as time goes on, that's going to flip and it's going to get to the point where um, there's not going to be need for any human or AI sort of editorial layer. Um, The AI itself will be producing consistently good music that can can be released, um, you know, in in the same way as something that previously gone through a long human vetting process that was a lot more expensive and time consuming and not necessarily um, offering offering an art, a music that was any better. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll leave the music discussion there because I know for a fact I can uh, ramble on, <laughs> on this for a long time. I want to get back to uh, the, uh, the initial spark for that discussion, of course, the, uh, the tools around literature. Uh, and, and I wanted to pick your brain about uh, how, you know, we, we have companies like Netflix, which are, inherently uh, mapping sort of content much in the same way that uh, the researchers did with the Project Gutenberg content. In the case of Netflix, they're mapping um, they're mapping this content to real users. Uh, and, and I just had this, um, uh, you know, the aha moment that, that um, you know, you, you kind of wonder how far Netflix can take uh, some of their algorithms when we begin to understand that hey there's only you know so many of so many stories that can be created i i wonder um where netflix is going with their sort of next level uh understanding of what human beings uh like in terms of stories and what is going to uh be sellable right be be uh part of uh the culture as uh, as as human beings consume more and more uh, uh, stories and movies. Dirk, I know you're you're a big consumer of Netflix. How how is Netflix doing with with that so far? And and do you think their AI is uh, um, uh, likely to develop further in this vein successfully? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about Netflix, that that starts to blend a couple of things together. I mean, I think their AI is doing okay. Um, it's it's tricky because. You know, I have, you know, there's four people in our family who are all on the same account, even though we have our own logins, ostensibly there's some pollution. So, um, you know, my my stream has been polluted by a few different people's tastes. So I'm not going to impugn Netflix on that. What I will impugn Netflix on is choice and the content that they're offering has diminished. And now, I mean, we're going to jump the tracks from AI and into into a different topic. But um, I, I think it's worth mentioning, you know, the, the cord cutting has been a big um, trend over the last decade, you know, less earlier, more, more recently. What I've noticed is that the services that enable cord cutting, you know, Netflix most primarily, but Amazon um, Prime, as well as Hulu and, and others, um, the content is getting worse. It's getting less. Um, It's, uh, you know, it's now difficult when we want to watch something to, to flip around and find something that's new and interesting. It's sort of the same old stuff or it's a lot of bad stuff. And that sort of degradation in available content is, is uh, something that I've noticed um, for, for some time, you know, I mean, one 
one example of it, Hulu used to host the Criterion Collection, which is um, a, a, you know, a collection of, I don't know how many, I think it's hundreds of sort of the great classic movies. And, you know, Criterion um, took their ball and created their own thing now. So if you want to get into Criterion stuff, you have to pay another, you know, 10, 12, $15 a month. Um, you know, if you want to get into CBS shows, that's 12, 13, $15 a month. Um, you know, some of their stuff they have on Hulu, a lot of it they don't. But the bottom line is now you have all of these different channels. Um, they all cost money and they're not coordinated. And the content that any one of them shows is generally really limited and, and crappy. I mean, it makes me, you know, wish of the days of, of 500 channel cable TV, even though I only would use 10 to 12 channels. You know, I was paying one bill and I knew where I could always go for consistent content. Now it's jumping around all of these different shards of content and having a hard time finding what we're looking for. Um, it's so I'm uh, sorry to go away from Netflix and AI. I'm, I'm not currently qualified to talk about it thanks to my family's viewing habits, but I think Netflix and these other streaming services are doing a, an increasingly poor job of making available um, the right content or at least um, surfacing it in a way that I can find it because I try pretty hard and, and I'm not finding a lot that's new and interesting for me. Yeah. I, th I think that that might be, you know, uh, you know, relevant in, in in a way to to the storytelling discussion that we're that we're having because in like I, I feel like in theory as Netflix gains this information about what you like, um, there there should be an avenue uh, for for them to deliver content whether it's um, you know, you spoke about how a lot of the licensing deals have changed over over time, and they're not, you know, sort of available in the same way anymore. And that's very understandable. But but you would think that the uh, the content that is um, not necessarily mainstream, but is but is still sort of mapping well to your tastes, um, would improve over time if if there are indeed sort of certain story types, certain um, genres, certain actors, whatever it is that you know appeals most uh, most to you, Dirk. Um, I I would I would think that over time Netflix would would be able to make up some of that ground with you, um, whether whether they can or not <laughs> remains to be seen. But but that's uh, it's it's an interesting problem set because uh, um, certainly you know the licensing is is uh, an additional barrier for them to. Uh, or hurdle for them to have to get over as they try to find the right stories for for Dirk, right? Well, yeah, yeah, and I, I, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. And you know, it's it's a typical. You know, you know, there's there's certainly good parts to a free market and capitalism, but this is getting into some of the bad parts. Namely, when this was new space, when it was sort of Netflix and nobody, or Netflix and one other company mucking around. There was an abundance of content. There was plenty of content. Now you have a number of big players. You have all these smaller people seeing a cash grab and trying to get in on it. And the competition that's created by the sort of abundance of, of possible revenues is fracturing the content and making it a lot more difficult to to enjoy it, which is too bad. Yeah. Yeah, That that is... Uh uh sort of too bad and also also probably a reason why they're investing more and more into the um in into their originals so they don't get cut off uh from content on the on the back end 
So, so the final piece to this discussion, I, I, I am very interested in sort of this combination of human and AI um, to, to generate news stories. So, so we talked about the, um, uh, you know, the computer generating uh, stories, and, we, and we've also talked about the computer identifying um, uh, the, the right stories to deliver to you. Um, in, in this last segment, I, I wanted to explore the idea that human writers could use AI to enhance their output, right? So, so um, we all sort of work faster because, you know, maybe, maybe we use Google Docs or in the past used Microsoft Word, made things easier, right? So, so I, could, I could see a, a step in the future where the software, um, you know, you're, you're a fiction writer and you're, you're creating your architecture for your, your story and, you know, this piece of software can provide for you certain elements of story that you're like, okay, I'm doing some science fiction, I'm going to do, uh, you know, the uh, rags to riches <laughs> kind of story. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to use dialogue in this style. I'm going to, I'm going to lay out the parameters and, I, and I'm going to, you know, do the plotting and create the characters. Uh, but I wonder if there isn't potential, especially in, in, in a, in an era where there are so many, uh, so many opportunities for content now, uh, you just pointed out like five or six different services that all need all need content now. I, I, I wonder if there's this human plus AI storytelling software that's going to come along because I sure would love to experiment with something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's so much that could be done, right? And the the problem is that it appears that corporate interests are pursuing AI as human replacement as opposed to AI as human enhancement, right? So like when, when you said, hey, there could be these cool new tools, my brain started to go in, in different directions of like, yeah, what could there be? And what would be really neat and, and easy to do with the kind of data they have at their um, at their disposal is if I'm if I'm a fiction writer, and I'm writing and you know, I, I don't know, I, I'm not even going to put a line out there because it would be horrible coming off the top of my head. But, you know, I'm writing about somebody smoking a cigar, for example. And it could pop up a little thing and say, you know, words commonly associated with cigars, um, you know, that are taken from just some curated group of like the best, the best, you know, um, 100,000 books ever written or, or whatever that, that looks like. I don't know what the right the right chalk lines to draw are. But then it could give me a list of 10 words. It could show me you know, sort of how frequently they're used. So, you know, the one with the highest rating might be uh, unctuous, for example. And I might say, oh, unctuous, it's a little too, um, it's a little too distinctive. You know, it's so popular, probably. I don't want another unctuous cigar. Um, so I start to tick further down the list and I see, oh, interesting. You know, this word, I, have, I don't remember seeing that. And I like it. It kind of fits my style. Let me, let me go with that. Like that would be fantastic, right? Because it, it's doing a couple of things. It's, it's sort of putting the dictionary thesaurus right at our, fingertips, it's doing it in context, but then it's also giving metadata around um, frequency and, you know, how accustomed are readers to seeing that word, to seeing that thing in that way that does work. And that's software that could be done with today's technology. Like that's not some futuristic AI thing, but it's, it's not a problem that's interesting to people with money and will to do things around AI. Um, because there's not a lot of money to be made. There. The, money, the <laughs> yeah, money to be made is kick Dirk out of the writing process and have have the damn computer write about unctuous cigars until the cows come home. Right. 
Yeah, I'd love to see a list of, you know, like, and here are the, you know, sort of top 10 cigars or, or here's, here's how cigar descriptions, you know, uh, are, are handled uh, based on uh, sort of size of cigar and the type of leaf that's rolled, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, there's, there's a, um, a startup idea for somebody, but uh, unfortunately, since it would be targeted at authors, you probably aren't going to make any money. Uh, <laughs> You'll probably lose a lot of money, yeah, but that's a lot right. of people will be happy. So, Listeners, hope you enjoyed this um, um, episode on storytelling and AI. And uh, if you did, please tweet at us and uh, you know let us know uh, what we did right and what we can do better. Uh, for now, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life. And go to the page for the show. We've included links to pretty, uh, pretty much everything mentioned by everybody. So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you follow us outside of the show, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. I promise I don't write about unctuous cigars because that would be gross. Um, but thank you so much for listening. So that's it for episode 203 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time.